please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I do have the passage for you in your worship booklet with an outline. This great epistle of the Apostle Paul, written to the Ephesians first and us uh, by extension, this inspired word of the Apostle given to us. He has been building up for what comes in these last few chapters. These last three chapters from four, four, five, and six are built on the basis of chapters one, two, and three, who we are in Christ, what God has done for us by his absolutely sovereign grace, by taking us from the kingdom of darkness and putting us in the kingdom of light, not because we wanted to, but because he's gracious and he's saving and he made us alive together with Christ. And who we are in Christ is the basis for everything he tells us to do going forward. He's not saying you've got to do these things or you will no longer be in Christ. He's saying you will do these things because you are in Christ. And he wants to encourage us, the apostle does, to look like who we really are. Our outward actions to match our inward identity, our legal identity before God in Christ, should start to look like something different in our outward actions, in our thoughts. We know it in our thoughts a bit as believers, but we struggle with then living it out. And so chapter 4, 5, and 6 comes from what is true, now what to do. Follow as I read verse 17 of chapter 4 down to verse 24. 17 to 32 is taken well as a whole section, but we need to divide it for time's sake, and you'll see why. 17 through 24 of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Please join me as I lead us in prayer. Father, we are in constant need of renewal in our minds and spirits. We are absolutely inundated with the message of an unbelieving world. And that message gets into our own minds, and we confess to think that way often. The messages we hear are usually hopeless, fearful, they can be angry. You have made us, though, alive together with Christ, and you have given us your word and spirit for the sake of our regular renewal, so that we might walk in a way that is worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. Please give us your spirit's aid so that we might understand and apply your holy word. I pray this in Christ. Amen. Jewish funerals and funeral preparation um, is quite a bit different than it is today. In those days, they didn't do embalming. Um, They would bury or put in tombs, as you're aware from your understanding of the Bible, no doubt. And oftentimes, the person who died, they would cleanse cleanse the body, and then they would put a light undergarment on, if anything at all, and then wrap in grave cloths that were tightly, tightly bound the body, and then place them in the grave or bury them. Um, different ways in which this was done. 
Now, think in terms of Lazarus, the story of Lazarus, maybe the most dramatic story other than Jesus' death and resurrection himself. But when Jesus comes to raise Lazarus, imagine the fact that this man has been dead for several days. It's hot outside, and all the features that would work to decay the body were already well at work. In fact, you remember in the King James Version, when Jesus said he was going to raise Lazarus and told the people to move the stone away so Lazarus could come out, so he's ready to raise him. And the lady said, don't do that. He stinketh. Days had gone by. He was already rotting. And the linens that he wore, we don't think often about, but they were made in such a way as to keep the body bound together through the decay process. And they would have been gross and stinky and terrible and nasty. Think of that now when Jesus raises him. And listen to the words Jesus speaks in John 11. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, and his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Now we're thinking he's raised again in immediate hugs. But the cloths aren't changed. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Get off that stinking, rotting, dead clothes. He's not dead any longer. He's alive. Those clothes do not match him because he is alive and he shouldn't wear rotting, old, nasty clothes that match a dead person. They didn't suit Lazarus anymore. This is a picture to some degree of what happens to every believer when they are made alive in Christ. The problem is when you're made alive in Christ, you are renewed for real. You're alive. But you still have old clothes on. You have old, nasty clothes, most likely, some nastier than others. But they're clothes that have to be put off. They have to be put off. And here's the thing. Lazarus, no doubt, very soon after, was given new clothes to wear. You put off the old clothes, and you put on the new clothes. The new clothes are for a living person. They're shiny. They're bright. They say something about the person wearing them. The old clothes should be put away and burned. We are in constant need of renewal as believers. Even though we are born again and that doesn't change, we will regularly go back after, for all sorts of reasons, the old clothes. It's like we want to pick them up and put them back on. And we find ourselves wearing them again at some level. Take them off, put them off, and put on new clothes. That's the message Paul's giving to these beloved people of Ephesus and to us by extension. He knows that we will be tempted to be drawn back into wearing the old clothes again, to looking like an identity that's no longer ours any longer. And he's trying to compel us to put off the old self and put on the new, the same way you would put off old clothes and put on new clothes, clothes that represent who we really are. New life in Christ, and it's new for all of us, no matter how long you've been in Christ. It means constant renewal, and that renewal happens in our minds and our spirits as God's Word has its work. The passage breaks down into two parts very simply. It talks about putting off the old clothes, the old self, and putting on the new. And then the verses that follow next week, Lord willing, are the particulars of what the new clothes look like. But for now, see the reasons for why we have to put off the old and put on the new. Verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Now in light of what has come in the first three chapters, now I come to this point and I say and testify in the Lord. I speak with the authority of the Lord as an apostle, Paul says, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Walking is a way of living. Don't walk in that path any longer. Don't follow that lifestyle any longer. 
you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. I say this now because of who you are in Christ. You must no longer walk like an unbeliever. Now, the word there is Gentiles, and I just said it as unbeliever because that's what it means. Gentile could be an ethnic reference at times in the Bible. But here, Paul is using Gentile to describe those who are not in covenant with God, those who are unbelievers. It's, it's a popular term rather than a technical term. There are technical terms that could have been used. Pagan would be a word that actually has a technical meaning, and it's probably closest to what an unbeliever would be. But there are other categories of people, especially in Greece, Epicureans or Stoics or you name any kind of the philosophers that people knew, the different religious offices that were held. Gentile just captured anybody who did not believe on Christ. Prior to Christianity, there were the Jews and the Gentiles. Jews were in covenant with God, and they had God's revelation, and they looked forward to Messiah's coming. Anybody who was not a part of the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, were Gentiles. In Christ, Judaism is fulfilled, and anyone who's in Christ is now in covenant with God, and anyone who's not, they're considered Gentiles. They're unbelievers. And Paul's giving description of what the unbelieving person, the unbelieving mind, thinks and acts like. The mind you and I would have if we were not redeemed. It's only by God's grace that we are not exactly as described here. And this is a withering description, to say the very least, about what the old self looked like. You may say, I've always been a believer. I don't recall ever having any inclinations like this. Now, first of all, check, because I'll bet you've got some inclinations that you can at least relate with what's being said there. All of us will still struggle with that old close. But if you have been a believer a long time and have been able to avoid a lot of the depth of what's said in this description, praise God for his grace to you. Recognize you would be this if it were not for his grace. So all of us in some way can appreciate what's being said here, what's being described, what has to be put off now that we are in the second Adam. Those who are in the first Adam have this old clothes still hanging on them. But if we're in Christ, we've got to put it off. No longer walk as the Gentiles do. And it says first, in the futility of their minds. The futility of their minds. The wasteful place that their thoughts always go That's a description for someone who doesn't know God in the futility of their minds. Don't walk like that. You know, Paul was writing to Christians who lived in a pagan country, an unbelieving country. Paul was writing to encourage those Christians in the midst of it to not go back to what they came out of. They might be tempted with all the pressures to go think like that or live like that. Eat, drink today, tomorrow we die. That thought process is easy to press upon believers. And so Paul wants them to be jarred out of this. Don't walk that way. And you know, the more you analyze the first century world that Christians received these epistles in, the more it resembles what we see around us in what's become a post-Christian, unbelieving general culture that we find ourselves in. I've read several books on this topic from people who are celebrating it because I'm interested to see why they think that paganism or a culture of unbelief ever does well for a society because it almost never ends well. I can't find any cases where it ends well. Yet you have talking heads all the time talking about how great it is to be liberated from Christianity. One such person is Roth Douthat who writes for the New York Times. He says in a recent book about the revival of paganism, the term paganism might be reasonably revived to describe the new American religion, the majority religion as it's coming, he says struggling to be reborn. Someone needs some help over here. 
Get a couple deacons there. Let's give a second to. We got a couple of the medical emergency relief team there that'll help out too. I think they've got that under control. I didn't see who it is, but let me just pray for whoever that is right now. Dear Lord, I pray for this dear sister that you'd uh, give her strength and uh, uphold her and give her the give wisdom to those helping her now that she would uh, receive healing and that you would watch over her and keep her safe now in Christ's name. Amen. Couldn't see who it was, so. Who? Oh, Renee Schmidt's mom. Well, back to what I was referring to here as a bit of a quote from Ross Douthat, who is, he's basically in his book arguing that it's a good thing that paganism is overtaking our current culture. And he cites a fascinating argument from another writer named Stephen Smith, a law professor at the University of San Diego. And listen to what Smith says in his book, Pagans and Christians, Culture Wars from the Tiber to the Potomac. Smith argues that much of what we understand as the march of secularism is something of an illusion, and that behind the scenes, it's actually, what's actually happening is the modern culture war is returning to a pagan religious conception, which was half buried, although never fully so, in the rise of Christianity. I'll just say a little more on that because I think it's intriguing. Um, sometimes we think of secularism as the thing that's encroaching, but it's really a reborn version of this paganism that was true in the first century. It's a belief system in ourselves as divine entities of some sort or the end of all things that we should be concerned with. And Douthat says this, what's the conception? Simply this, that divinity is fundamentally inside the world rather than outside of it. Like you don't have to look to God, it's all here with us, we've got it. And this really reminds me of the kind of mindset you find today, that God or the gods or being are ultimately part of nature rather than an external creator that the meaning and morality and the metaphysical experience are to be sought in a fuller communion with the imminent world rather than a leap toward the transcendent. That's a really elaborate way of describing existentialism, which is you only care about your existence. That's it's just a big word for all I care about is right now. What's happening now? That's all that matters. Let's not look beyond that. And if people are going to get in my way about that thinking, then they can't be, they've got to be dealt with. And there's a growing sentiment about this. It's we want to have life the way we want it, and as long as you don't mess with us, fine. But if you mess with us, then you're in trouble. And that's an unbelieving culture that pressed in the first century the way it does today. Paul dealt with that. He teaches and preaches Christianity. Well, as long as adherence to Jesus' life does not stop us from doing what we want to do at the pagan temple, that's fine. Or what we want to do by way of sensuality or materialism or whatever. And that's the unbelieving mind that Paul begins to describe and warns Christians, don't walk like this. Don't live like this. Look at verse 17, the last part, the futility of their minds. In the unbelieving mind that works like this, their thoughts are always leading to nowhere. Their minds are dwelling on things that have no ultimate value. It's only the here and now. Ultimately, their minds are dwelling on things that will be wasteful, that will decay, that will be gone. Their thoughts are off any fruitful course. That's the futility of the mind of the unbeliever apart from Christ. 
in verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding. They do not have full light on things. There's not full perspective. They can't see the full truth because it's, they're, they're darkened in their understanding. They may know some things about the world. They could be extremely intelligent people. There's no question. But they don't have the full view of the thing. You've met people like this. They're brilliant. They're helpful. But they miss something of the edge of what's fully true about the thing they're studying or or learning or can teach about or know. Their reasoning powers are dimmed by their unbelief. Sinclair Ferguson notes how profound this would have been for those first listeners talking about darkened minds. Wait a minute, we live in Greece. Everybody's really smart here, and we're philosophers, and we talk about a lot of stuff for a long time. Ferguson said the central principle of the Greek world and life view was that the best, noblest, and ultimately the most worthwhile part of the human being is the intellect. The mind is the divine element in the human being. So it's all about what you think. That's what the Greek mind said. And what is Paul saying? Their minds are darkened, darkened in their understanding. Don't walk like that, it says further in verse 18. Because of that, they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. It necessarily detaches them from any intimacy with the Creator. The thing we long for, to know God, they don't care about. It's not a matter to them. They either deny the existence of God or ignore Him or act like there's no way you can know Him. So they don't live their life in light of their being on ultimate authority. And why does this happen? It's due, it says in verse 18 again, it's due to their hardness of heart. Their hard heart is the heart that they inherited from Adam. And it means dead. It means rock hard. The Greek word paros means a stone harder than marble. That's the word that we get this hardness of heart imagery from. They're dead to the perception of spiritual things. That's the truth of an unbeliever. They only know their existence. It says, verse 19, you see the continuum, they have become callous. So their hardness of heart makes them callous or unfeeling. So callous, dead. You know, guitar players like to build calluses on their fingers so that they can play the strings better. It doesn't hurt. They don't feel. That's what callous is. People who are callous just don't feel things. They don't feel for other people. Now, it may seem outwardly like they do, but it's usually related to how it affects them. That's where they show empathy or feelings towards. But callousness, that's, that's when you're pretty dead to the plight of others or, or you have no sensitivity to others. You know, I was thinking recently in the last two weeks just how ugly people can be. Like, if, if, if a person is celebrating the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg or they're celebrating the president getting sick, that is the definition of callous. And that's how unbelievers think. Believers don't think like that. Now, it doesn't mean you agree with people or, or you might be upset with this, but when there's suffering or when there's death, or when, the idea that any human being would be so callous as to wish that kind of hate, that's a, that's a trait of unbelief. The believer is given sensitivity, an appreciation for our, what's true of us. Unbelievers have become callous in an ultimate sense. They have given themselves up to sensuality. If you're in this place where you don't feel or you're, you're in this place of hard-heartedness, it's a painful existence. So it makes sense that someone in this state would go to that which is sensual. What is sensual? Those things that you can taste, you can feel, you can touch. Most of the time, things that are sensual can become addictive, whether it be whether our behaviors or things we ingest, the things we take. And so they go after these sensualities in a way to, to feel, to feel something, uh, 
to escape perhaps, whatever the case, it's the norm or the regular trait or course that an unbeliever would take is to give themselves up to sensuality. And give themselves up is a great way to describe how it grabs them. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity in verse 19. So you're going after everything, trying to feel something. It's not based on just a driving innate evil on its own. That's true of, belie- of all of us outside of Christ. It's just what that does to you and how you try to, per- to, try to put a Band-Aid on it or put a medicine to it, whatever it may be. And they go after this, and you as people in Christ no longer have to walk that way. You have a different perspective, a new life. You understand, you have sensitivities because the Spirit's given them to you. That is what is being described. But for the unbeliever, ultimately, they're driven by their appetites. Have you ever seen a hungry animal? A few years ago, I saw, it's a little bit of a, a new story, I suppose, where after Afghanistan was basically liberated right after 9-11 uh, from the Taliban, and they went in there, and there, were, there was a couple different zoos that they had with these animals who had been sitting there for three or four days with no food because the zookeepers fled. And so it took a little while still to get them food. And the scenes of where they, put, they threw pieces of meat and food, morsels of food over, and the animals, all different species too, would run in after it and just devour to try to get this little bit of food. And uh, if one stopped another from eating, they would fight each other. It was a brutal scene. It was just they were acting on their appetites and their perception of what they needed. And that is really a description of all of us apart from Christ just going after our appetites, just going after whatever it is that stands before us. This is a bit of the picture of the unbelieving mind that Paul is saying to us Christians, you don't walk that way any longer. You don't have to walk that way any longer. What way? Futility of our minds, darkened in understanding, alienated from God, ignorant of the things of God, hearts that are hardened, all things that lead to callousness, slavery to sensuality, and agreed towards all kinds of impurities. We all still struggle with every one of these sinful propensities. Every believer here knows it. But what you also know is that God's given you grace. You recognize it to be what it is, and you can ask God for help. The Holy Spirit will enable you. You can put off that old clothes and put on new clothes in Christ. It will be a process your whole life. You will still have issues. You'll still fall at times, but you are in Christ now. And as a result of being in Christ, you can put off and put on, and that is a glorious grace of God. The prospect of sanctification is something that should encourage us. It should make us know, no, this doesn't have to be this way. I don't have to be enslaved to this. Yes, it will be a battle. I will need other people to help me. I will need God's means of grace. But this is not who I am any longer. And I can put off this old clothes and put on this new clothes. I like to joke and say that we Christians are often like junior high boys at summer camp. And you have to let me explain. But it's a good illustration. I promise. Ten years ago, I was at junior high camp Clearwater that we had with Pastor Brian Huff. And he talked me into being in a certain cabin. Now, my son asked me, my son AJ, who was junior high at the time, Dad, if you're going to go, don't be my counselor. I appreciate that. I don't want to be your counselor either. We're even. So anyways, I took the other cabin. He was in the other, in, in the cabin next to ours. And so I did know, I tried not to pay attention to what he was doing, but I did notice at the end of day one, what he was wearing, and the beginning of day two was the same shirt and the same shorts. I thought, okay, I'm not going to say anything about it. But, you know, as day two ended, I, I mentioned to him, hey, you know, mom packed quite a bit of stuff there. Why don't you put a different shirt on, a different pair of shorts tomorrow? Didn't say much, murmur, murmur. Stay out of my business is what I gathered. Was, that was my interpretation of the body language. 
morning three comes around, and here comes AJ with the same shirt, same shorts. And um, at some point, someone posts a picture on social media, and I get a text from Sherry right away, tell him to change his shirt. That's the third day he's been wearing the shirt. So I go to his cabin. I said, AJ, it's lunchtime by now. We're going on three and a half days. I mean, Lazarus, his grave clothes, was only slightly less stinky from what this must have been. I said, uh, AJ, your mother said you need to change your shirt. So I go up. It's lunchtime. I wait, and here comes AJ up the, up the hill, and here he has his shirt, but he's cut off the sleeves. Dad, I changed my shirt. Yes, you did, son. You changed your shirt. Junior high boys. Same stuff every day. Now, here's the thing I want to tell you, in fairness to junior high boys who may be listening. They took showers every night and bathed themselves in Axe body wash. You could smell it. But then they put the same clothes back on. Every night they were taking showers, bragging about the different fragrances they had. I kid you not, this is a true story. They even had baby powder that they had used as a prank, and they were putting that on too. But then they would grab the old, dirty, sweaty, nasty clothes and put them back on. That's what Christians do so often. Completely washed in the blood of Christ. Completely clean in Jesus. In position with God, he sees Jesus. That's what he sees when he sees you. And you are safe in that. He will never drop you from this. Then why do you pick up the dirty clothes and put them back on? That's exactly the kind of thing Paul is trying to tell believers. Yes, you're renewed in Christ, but you've got to walk differently. You've got to wear different clothes. And he's going to explain what those clothes are, what they look like, coming soon. But now in the rest of the passage, I want you to see how he compels us towards this casting off of the old stinky clothes and putting on clothes that resemble who we really are. Verse 20, after describing the way unbelievers think and act as a result, he said, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Now pay close attention to the word order here. It's a very unique word order. It does not say, but that's not the way you learned about Christ, or that's not the way that you learn how Jesus lives. Now, those things are true, but he's saying something to the Ephesians that's very personal about Jesus. Learning Christ, you learn the person of Christ. He's not talking about uh, what you might know about Christ intellectually. Knowing Jesus personally is what he's saying. That's not how you learn Jesus or came to know Jesus. Jesus prays in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, God the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing Jesus is the beginning point to this ability to throw off the old clothes and put on the new clothes. It's just a description of this renewal God does when he brings us together with his son. And we might describe it as knowing Christ. Do you know Christ, someone might say. That means, do you trust in Christ and his work, the person and work of Jesus? Do you rest in it? That's what it means to learn Christ, to know Christ. And he's saying to the Ephesians, that's not how you learn. That's not what I taught you. I taught you Christ, which means the person is the the subject and the teacher. Jesus is the teacher. He's the subject of it. And Paul only sought to model that in his own life. And that's how we model Christ when we teach Christ. Not just the facts about Jesus, but what it is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. But that is not the way you learn Christ, believers. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, remember, he's writing to the Ephesians, who he spent two years with ministering to. He no doubt had faces, like I'd have your faces in mind if I were writing you an email. I could think of people in the church who's reading this. 
that's no doubt the way Paul was when he writes. So this first line is, but you, that's not the way you learn Christ. But there would be other people who had come to Christ since then, more people in the church, and now he's making a general statement of challenge. Yes, I believe you're all believers and you trust in Christ, you rest in him, but I don't know every one of you, so I just want to pause and say, you know what I'm talking about, right? That you have to believe in his, so I would do like that. And so, so, he, so he does in verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He's just capturing all the Ephesians and all readers now, those who've been longtime believers have heard this already, he knows had heard it, and just making sure everybody's reading it gets what he's saying because he, it won't make any sense about putting on new clothes if you have not been renewed, if you are not alive together with Christ, in Christ. Our new identity in Christ and what it looks like to live in light of it is what's coming next. Put off, verse 22, your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Take off the grave clothes that belong to a dead person, throw them off, and put something new on. It's corrupt through the deceitful desires. This is just capturing all that was described of unbelievers. And this is an active effort on our parts. By God's grace, yes, but we have to engage. It doesn't just happen. You have to actively engage in putting off your old way of thinking and acting. A struggle, but in Christ, we can do this. And I say we because he's placed you in a body of believers to help you with this. Nobody on their own has to fight off that thing that's besetting you. You have people to help you. You have the word to guide you. The Holy Spirit will give you power. All of this is true for us in the body of believers. We cannot do this alone. I'm too ashamed. I can't say it. So is, there's something like that in someone else's life too. We have to rely upon the community God's given us to put off the old and put on the new. Because if we don't, that means we're in isolation and that means we're taking our message from somebody else, some other community. And that's always going to be a message that will bring you down, will make things worse. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires. And here is the key now that leads us into the last part of the, ver- the passage that we'll get to, verse 25 and beyond. You put off, but look at verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So you have to do something. You don't just put it off and say, oh, I'm free of this. But something has to happen at that moment. And this is a present active tense. Be renewed. In other words, it's something you do and you'll have to keep doing. It's going to be a renewal. New life in Christ means a constant renewal of our minds and actions. It's not like I tell you this once and you'll go and have no more trouble. It's going to be a constant that we need. It's a present active, an ongoing action we're required to engage in. It's about being constant. Paul, when he wrote to the Romans in chapter 12, he said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is a recurring theme for Paul, that there is a renewal of our minds that must come from the word of God and the spirit of God. Later in Ephesians, we'll get here, Lord willing, in chapter 5, that great passage of how Jesus is the Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he, Jesus, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. The word of God has the effect of renewal, of cleansing, of refreshing, and that's what we need in a constant basis. That's how you'll know how to put off the old and put on the new. 
Mind renewal comes from God's intervention in our soul, in our food for our soul is his word. Look at verse 24. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Verses 25 to 32 spell out for us or give us specifics of what the garment looks like that we are now putting on. Our new identity has corresponding responsibilities. And we'll see this as the rest of the passage unfolds. For now, though, remember that, if you can remember this picture, we are like Lazarus. We've been raised from the dead. We have old, stinking grave clothes on. Throw them off. Don't keep putting them back on, picking them up and putting them back on. But instead, look for the new garments God's given you. He's given you the ability to have and own and put those on. Paul wrote to the Galatians, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He writes to the Colossians, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. He's talking to Colossians. These are Christians. They must have been lying to each other some way. He said, don't lie to each other. You put that off. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And in Romans 13, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. You can't just put off. You have to put on or you'll keep picking up the old clothes again. That's the point. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Kent Hughes, the pastor, the longtime pastor of the college church in Wheaton, he said, we must daily set aside the rotting garments of the old self. We must formally reject sensuality and selfish pride and materialism and bitterness. We must read the word and ask God to renew our minds through the spirit. We must put on our new shining garments of life. We must put on what we are. Again, our passage to close, verse 22, and then linking it to verse 24. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in the true righteousness and holiness. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, too often we put on our old stinking clothes. With this exhortation from Ephesians, please renew our minds in Christ afresh, where we have slipped into thinking like the world thinks, and acting like pagans. Please revive us and shake us out of our stupor where we have been taking in too much of the world's message, which is largely a message of fear and anxiety and worry and outrage, even unrest and anger. Please bring us to your word again and again where we may continually be renewed by our Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.